Zephaniah 3, 9 through 20. For then I will give to the peoples purified lips, that all of them may call on the name of the Lord, to serve him shoulder to shoulder. From beyond the rivers of Ethiopia, my worshipers, my dispersed ones, will bring my offerings. In that day you will feel no shame because of all your deeds by which you have rebelled against me. For then I will remove from your midst your proud, exulting ones, and you will never again be haughty on my holy mountain. But I will leave among you a humble and lowly people, and they will take refuge in the name of the Lord. The remnant of Israel will do no wrong and tell no lies, nor will a deceitful tongue be found in their mouths. For they will feed and lie down with no one to make them tremble. Shout for joy, O daughter of Zion. Shout in triumph, O Israel. Rejoice and exult with all your heart, O daughter of Jerusalem. The Lord has taken away his judgments against you. He has cleared away your enemies. The King of Israel, the Lord, is in your midst. You will fear disaster no more. In that day it will be said to Jerusalem, Do not be afraid, O Zion. Do not let your hands fall limp. The Lord your God is in your midst, a victorious warrior. He will exult over you with joy. He will be quiet in his love. He will rejoice over you with shouts of joy. I will gather those who grieve about the appointed feasts. They came from you, O Zion. The reproach of exile is a burden on them. Behold, I am going to deal at that time with all your oppressors. I will save the lame and gather the outcast, and I will turn their shame into praise and renown in all the earth. At that time, I will bring you in, even at that time when I gather you together. Indeed, I will give you renown and praise among all the peoples of the earth when I restore your fortunes before your eyes, says the Lord. Thanks, Stephanie. Well, it's good to be back with you. I had some time away, had some time the Oregon coast and uh, hiking in the wilderness, backpacking, just getting away, and it was a wonderful time, but there's nothing like coming back and worshiping together with God's people. So today we're finishing up the book of Zephaniah. We're continuing our summer series on the, some of the minor prophets. They're listed there. Next week, we'll finish the Minor Prophets for the summer. And then the following week, before we begin the book of 2 Corinthians, I'll be doing a topical message on gay marriage. It's a pretty hot topic these days. And we as Christians, the elders feel strongly that we as a body need to understand a biblical perspective on gay marriage. So that'll be in two weeks from today. Some years ago, our family decided it was time to have a dog. <laughs> so, we went to the Humane Society. One of our kids decided this is the one we needed to have. We brought her home. But she was very timid, and especially around men, which meant she was timid around me. If I spoke to her, if I just took a step towards her, she would cower. She'd obviously been abused by men in her life and I wanted a good relationship with her but she was running from me 
She did not understand my love for her. And she would wander out in the street and I would yell at her to come. And because she was afraid, she would run away. She didn't understand why I was being firm with her at that point. And it took a while for her to build my trust, begin to trust me and begin to walk with me. You see, I think we're like that with God. Theologically, we know that God loves us. We've been singing about it all morning, right? Isn't it great? God loves us. Amazing. He sent Jesus. He gave us the cross. He does so much for us. He's proven His love for us, and we know that theologically. But in the nitty-gritty of life, we find that life's hard, and we struggle with God's love because We feel like, God, if you really love me, if God loves me so much, why does he allow so many hard things in my life? It doesn't feel like love to us. So I find that many of us are confused, many of us struggle, and I know a number of friends who withdraw from God because they don't understand God's love. Why do we struggle so much? Why do we misunderstand God's love? Why, why do we not see what he does as love? Well, I think probably the primary reason is that we have a human view of love. Our culture reinforces the wrong view of God's love. Let me read some quotes to you. Maya Angelou says this, Love is like a virus. It can happen to anybody at any time. Loretta Young says, love isn't something you find. Love is something that finds you. Do you get the sense of those quotes? It's just uh, a feeling. It's something that hits you. (laughs) It just comes. Karen, age seven, said this. When you love somebody, your eyelashes go up and down and little stars come out of you. (laughs) But notice again, love is a feeling. It's this excitement. It's this affection. Mark, age six, said this, Love is when mommy sees daddy on the toilet and she doesn't think it's gross. (laughs) And then Emily, age eight, said this, Love is when you kiss all the time. Then when you get tired of kissing, you still want to be together and you talk more. My mommy and daddy are like that. They look gross when they kiss. (laughs) We could go on and on, but... If you think about the perspective that's given there, it's pretty reflective of our society, which is love is some kind of emotion or it's total acceptance, so you you never question anything in the person's life. You just warmly embrace everything that they are. Or as many in our society today, especially the younger generation, they equate love with sex. It's this physical act, and that's, kind of as far as love goes. How sad. So what happens to us, because in our culture we've kind of bought into this, we, we think, well, if God loves me, then he should make me feel good all the time, right? <laughs> and he should totally accept me where I am. Always. He should make my life go well because, hey, that's what I would do if I really love somebody. I would want to make their life 
go well if I could. But folks, as we'll see in our passage today, God's love is not human love. <laughs> it's, it's way above human love. It's far greater. The very best human loves are reflective of God's love. They can be. But God's love is not a reflection of human love. It's, it's a whole different thing. In fact, the New Testament writers, as they were reflecting on God's love in the Old Testament and what they were experiencing in Christ in the New Testament, they could not find a good word <laughs> for love. And so they actually took a little-used Greek word, agape, and they said, this we are going to use to describe God's love because no word that describes human love can even begin to fit God's love for us. Well, our passage today, Zephaniah chapter 3, gives us a marvelous picture of God's love, I believe. His amazing love. And I, I think as we go through it, hopefully it will give you a deeper understanding of God's love for us so that we can trust Him more. So rather than withdraw, we can embrace His wonderful, His powerful, His passionate love for us. Pray with me. Lord, it is so clear that our world has no idea what love is. But thank you that you have revealed yourself as love. God is love. You are love. And therefore, today, Lord, help us understand the depths of your love for us. May, may we let go of worldly perspectives of your love and may we embrace who you really are in your passionate love for us. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. From this passage, Zephaniah 3, I want to look at three actions of God's love, how he expresses his love to us. The first, in verses 1 through 8, is love exposes reality. God's love, real love, exposes reality. Now, I run into this all the time. You probably do too. Like a friend of mine who decided that he was going to go his own way. He decided he was going to choose a lifestyle that clearly was against God. He walked away from God. And yet, he continued to claim to me that, hey, God accepts me. He forgives me. I know it's wrong, but he died for me. He forgives me. And he embraces me, and why can't you do it too, Jackson? Or a number of parents I've worked with recently whose child has chosen an ungodly lifestyle. And the child is saying, hey, I feel close to God. He still loves me. Why can't you as parents love me and accept me as I am? Do you understand what they're really saying? They're really saying... Why can't you just accept me and affirm my sinful lifestyle as well? Can't we just have a good relationship even though I'm choosing to walk in sin? God forgives me, why can't you? You see, what this does is it completely misunderstands God's love. And it ignores the truth that sin 
brings death. Sin is always destructive in relationships. Sin destroys relationships. And true love, God's love, cannot ignore that reality. And so love exposes reality. It's what we see happening in these first few verses of chapter 3 where the message from Zephaniah is, Woe to her who is rebellious and defiled, the tyrannical city, speaking of Jerusalem as representing the people of God. She heeded no voice. She accepted no instruction. She did not trust in the Lord. She did not draw near to her God. God points out to Israel their rebellion. They're turning away from him. And uses this word that's a, it's defiled in my translation, verse 1. It's a word for having a stain, like in a garment, a stain that you wash and wash and wash and you cannot get it out. And he says, that's what my people are like. They've turned their backs on me and walked their own way and notice what he says, they're unteachable. They accept no instruction. They, they won't listen no matter how much I reach out to them. So he exposes the reality of that unteachableness and ultimately their lack of trust of God. He says they do not trust in the Lord. They will not draw near to her God. goes on in the next few verses to talk about, next couple of verses, three and four, to talk about the leadership of Israel and how the, the princes, the judges, the prophets, the priests, those leaders who should be leading you toward God are actually leading you away. And so God confronts the reality of where they are as a nation and where they are as individuals. They're unteachable. They don't trust God. They're going their own way. They're rebellious. You see, God so longs for a good relationship with us and He knows that what gets in the way of that relationship is our rebellion, our sin, our lack of trust of God. And so, because God knows that sin is blocking our relationship with Him, He exposes that. Have you noticed that? God continually, gently, carefully, but He exposes your own pride, your own selfishness your own anger, your own self-dependence, and he exposes that so that you can get it out in the open and be free from it. Sin gets in the way of relationship, and so God cannot ignore that because he loves us too much. He wants relationship with us. In the early years of our marriage, I was so committed to being a good pastor, and I had to be a good husband good father and all that, that, that when I got criticism from Jeannie, I couldn't accept it. I didn't want to look at it because I had to be okay. That was just pride. That was just arrogance. But God in His grace began to expose my heart, partly through my wife, partly just through circumstances and others, and began to help me face the reality of what a mess I was. That's love, folks. That's God's love where he exposes the reality of how sin is hurting us and hurting those around us so that we can let go of it, we can confess it, we can repent, we can be free. Because sin destroys relationships. 
And God's love is so great. He can't allow that to go on. So first he exposes our sin. And then in the next few verses we see how he, he reveals, he exposes that he is righteous. He always does what is right. Verse 5, the Lord is righteous within her, within the people of God. He will do no injustice. Every morning he brings his justice to light. He doesn't fail. But the unjust knows no shame. God is righteous. He always does what is right in relationships. He's always acting out of justice and holiness. And he goes on to say how he judges the nations and continues to do so. Now, sometimes we struggle with that, don't we? We think, if God is really just, if he's really righteous, why doesn't he deal with this messed up world? Why doesn't he judge the nations? Well, all you have to do is look at history. God is continually judging nations. Where is mighty Babylon today? Where is Assyria? Where is that all-encompassing Roman Empire today? Where's the Persian Empire? Where's Nazi Germany? Where's the USSR? And he judges not only nations but individuals. Where's Hitler today? <laughs> He's faced judgment, believe me. Where's Stalin today? Nebuchadnezzar, and on and on and on. You see, God has judged, he does judge, and he will ultimately, in the end, judge all. He is just, he is righteous. We're told in Romans 2 that the only reason the world even goes on is because God in his patience is giving people time to repent. He is being gracious so that we might Get, become free and have an opportunity to come to know him. He longs for us to turn to him. He longs for us to know him. So God loves us enough. He, he doesn't let us pretend. He keeps revealing to us what we are really like and what he is really like so we'll see how much we need him. God loves us too much to ignore our sin. Because he knows that sin destroys relationships with him and with others. So God is committed to exposing our sin. That's love. To exposing reality to us. Then he goes on in the next few verses, 9 through 14, that real love, God's kind of love, not only exposes reality so that we can face it, but secondly, he purifies. Love purifies. This last week, Jeannie and I were working in the bathroom and we were taking carpet out of a bathroom. Carpet in a bathroom is never a good idea, especially with three boys in the house. And so we decided we're taking out that carpet. And so we had to rip it out and rip out the tacked board around the walls. And we had to smooth out the floor, prepare it, put down new backing. We had to clean it all up before we could put down the new beautiful tile. It would have been a huge mistake to just leave the carpet and try to put the tile on top of it, right? <laughs> you had to clean out the old stuff before you could bring in the new. You see, God knows that some purification has to take place for us to come back to him and have a good relationship with him. He has to begin to purify and clean out our pride, our selfishness, our self-dependence, our lack of trust of him 
so that we will come to him and trust him as our life. So he knows that he has to root out the sin that separates us from him because sin destroys relationships. So it says, he purifies, verse 9, he says, For then I will give to the people's purified lips that all of them may call on the name of the Lord to serve him shoulder to shoulder. And then he talks about calling worshipers from Ethiopia and all over the known world that God longs to have intimate relationship with every human being. And he opens the door for that. But for that to happen, he must purify our lips, he says. Lips here is representative of all that we are, everything that comes out of us, our words, our actions. It's all revealing what's in the heart so that, as he says, our lips can be used not selfishly, but to worship him and to work with others. He says, serving shoulder to shoulder. What a marvelous picture of the kingdom of God where we work together, we worship Him together like we are doing this morning and we learn to serve Him together. And it says He goes on to root out of Israel those who are proud and arrogant, who refuse to depend on God. And He leaves the humble remnant those who are willing to admit, I need you, God, every minute. But doesn't he do that not just with Israel, but with us as well as individuals? He, he roots out that pride. The self-dependence that says, no, God, I know better than you. I can, I can run my life better than you. I know better than you. And, and he, he has to purify us, bring us to a place where we are broken. He burns away the dross so that the purity can be left. And so he takes us through hard things. He reminds us through that that sin is deep in us and we can't root it out. We don't need just a pill. That won't do it. We need major surgery. And so God takes us through it in life, through illness, through struggle, through pain. But isn't that really where we struggle with God's love? Because again, we think, God, if you really love me, I should feel like you're loving me. You should make life easy. You should make my life more comfortable. But see, God loves us too much to let us continue to be enslaved and controlled by the sin, the pride, the arrogance that separates us from him and others. Because did I say that sin destroys relationships? Yeah, I think I did. It does. And real love will not allow that to go on. We think, God, if you truly love me, you'd make life easier for me. I wouldn't struggle with wayward kids. I wouldn't struggle with unsatisfying marriage. I wouldn't struggle with constant health issues. I wouldn't struggle with a bad boss, etc. But see, that's not love. Love allows us, brings things into our lives so that we will turn to him we'll see that we can't handle life and we'll cling to him and through that purification process we begin to move towards this third action where God really wants to get us and the third action after he exposes and he purifies is that love restores real love God's kind of love restores this is a beautiful passage of scripture one of my favorites 
verse 14 through 20, it reveals the passionate heart of God for us, how he longs to be gracious to us, how he longs for real relationship with us. He wants us to experience joy. He restores us to himself and to one another. And I want you to note this deep love that we're about to talk about, this passionate love for us and God's longing for real intimacy with us, it's, an, it's the Old Testament God. <laughs> Sometimes we think, oh, well, the Old Testament God, he's judgmental, the New Testament God, you know, he's loving. No, it's the same God, folks. But his love is always one that exposes and purifies and restores. Uh, Let me just give you a picture of what I think is behind the heart of God here as he's passionately loving us. You see, God, before the beginning of time, before he created us, God existed in the Trinity, Father, Son, Holy Spirit, and there's an incredible love there, and you see that expressed in a number of places in Scripture, maybe John 16 and 17, most clearly where you see the Father and Son glorifying one another and the Spirit glorifying the Son and the Son glorifying the Spirit. And you see this delight, this unity that's described there, this oneness. And I think God before time said, you know what, this love was overflowing and he said, I want to make creatures, create creatures who can enter into the joy of this intimacy and this love. So he made us. But he also gave us freedom so that that love could be chosen from the heart. And because we've rebelled, we don't experience the intimacy and the joy of that trinity of God that he longs for us to experience. Sin separates us from him because sin destroys relationships. (laughs) But he's made a way in Christ that if we will be broken and humble, we can come to him and experience that intimacy again. And that's what's described here. Verse 14, he talks about rejoicing. Shout for joy, daughter of Zion. Shout in triumph, O Israel. Rejoice and exult. God wants us to have joy in his presence. He wants us to delight in who he is. How do we get there? How do we experience that joy? Number one, receive his forgiveness. Admit we need it. I'm a mess, Lord, and I need your forgiveness. Thank you for the cross. And number two, enjoy intimacy with him. Learn to find your greatest joy. Not in what this world offers, not in in the blessed things, but in the blesser, the blessed one who gives us life. Learn to find your joy in him. Notice God's incredible heart for you. And I'm going to focus on verse 17. My translation says, The Lord your God is in your midst. He's a victorious warrior. He's mighty to save. In other words, He will exult over you with joy. He will be quiet in His love. He will rejoice over you with shouts of joy. See, He wants us to come and Realize that he is in our midst. He's this victorious warrior. What's the picture here? I think he's describing like a knight in shining armor. Maybe a knight in the round table. A mighty warrior who knows that there's a damsel who's been taken by a terrible dragon. And he goes and he fights. 
willing to risk his life to rescue this damsel in distress, he brings her out and saves her, kills the dragon, and he is so excited. He's singing for joy over this restored relationship with his beloved. That's the picture that's here, that that's what God does with us. He sings for joy. He shouts for joy. He's so excited having rescued us from sin that he loves us. He delights in us and he sings over us because he's so excited that he set us free. Luke 15 gives a picture of that. You know, the lost sheep and the lost coin, the prodigal son, all those stories end with what? Celebration, a party. I found what was lost. God wants us to know that He rejoices and celebrates over us. Now, I know many of us feel like, well, you know, God loves me because He has to. But truth be told, He doesn't really like me. Many of us feel that way because we know we're not together. But we need to understand that because we are placed in Christ, He shouts with joy over us. He sings over us. And then there's this beautiful scene in the middle of verse 17 where he says, he will be quiet in his love or he will quiet you in his love. I really think the picture he's giving here is of two lovers who are so intimate, nothing needs to be said. They're simply together maybe holding hands, maybe gazing into one another's eyes, but there's no need to talk because there is such delight in being together. Do you realize that's how our Heavenly Father views you? He is so fond of you. He delights in you. He wants you to just rest quietly in His love. He uses the most intimate of human relationships to lovers to say, This is just a foretaste of what I have for you in heaven. Can you learn to enjoy me now? I love you that much. Then at the end, uh, verses 18 through 20, in each of those verses, he uses the word gather, of gathering the people of God together to a place where they can experience glory and life and communion together. You see, God's whole goal in exposing the reality of how much we need Him, of purifying us from the things that block us from Him, is that He wants this kind of intimacy. We were created for this. And He wants to free us up to experience that kind of intimacy, that kind of communion, that kind of life together as the body of Christ. So He gathers us together. And this is just a foretaste, folks, of heaven. Because in heaven, what will it be? It will be primarily intimacy with Him and with one another. And the joy of the church, of communion together, of life together, is that we have a foretaste of that now. Not perfect. Yeah, we're still a mess. We're still broken. But in that, we're beginning to experience that intimacy with Him and with one another that is going to be so much greater when we go be with Him forever. You see, God's love is not human love. It's far greater than human love. God's God's love is so great that He will not allow us to remain 
captive to sin that destroys relationships. Instead, he exposes, he purifies, he takes us through hard things so that we can know him and love one another well, so that we can be restored to him. So how should we live? Let me just give some suggestions. Number one, let's submit to this whole exposure and purification process. Let's not fight it. Let's see it for what it is, a gift of God's love. So when we go through hard times, it doesn't feel good, but let's cling to him and turn to him and trust in him, knowing it's part of his tender love towards us. Secondly, let's learn to rejoice in his love, to just be quiet in his love. Third, let's learn to trust him as really good, as one who loves us well. Another quote, and this is Billy, age four. Billy said, When someone loves you, the way they say your name is different. You know that your name is safe in their mouth. That's a four-year-old. But folks, that's how God loves you. Your name is safe in his mouth. You know you're in his hands. And then finally, let's learn to love one another out of the love that we're experiencing in him so that we can experience a taste of heaven here as we enjoy his love and as we learn to love one another in the midst of this messed up world that does not understand what love is. Let's pray. Lord, what a marvelous picture of love. So much bigger than the world can even begin to understand. Thank you that you love us enough to purify us, to expose what's true so that we will be driven to you, so that we can experience real joy, real intimacy, real life in community with you and with one another. Oh Lord, help us to walk in that love. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's stand together as I close the service. Paul, in the book of Ephesians, chapter 3, prays a prayer, and he says this, and I send you out with this prayer. I bow my knees before my Father, that he would grant you, according to the riches of his glory, to be strengthened with power through his Spirit in the inner man, so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith, and that you, being rooted and grounded in love, may be able to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and length and height and depth, and to know the love of Christ, which surpasses knowledge, that you may be filled up to all the fullness of God. May you walk in all the fullness of God in his love this week. God bless.